The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. It's good to see you all today um, and encouraged by the worship team this morning. Part of the story of what the Lord is doing around here, um, those, are, that's, those are you people. Like Those are all part of the body that's leading in worship, Corey being gone today, and so um, thankful for them, and if you want to be a part of that team, I would encourage you to reach out to Corey, um, as we love to see our people that the Lord is blessed with the musical talent to like minister to us in music. So Quentin Hurst, no need to apply. <laughs> Just like he, yeah, he's like he was, he's busting my chops yesterday. He's a K State fan, but who cares, All right? All right, so. We've been in this series called uh, Kingdom, and we've been going through Acts. And so we've been in it a while, and the Lord has done some really cool things throughout it. And so we're kind of taking a little pause here for the month of November, and we're going to talk about kingdom stories. And we're doing that because of what the Lord has been up to and how he's been moving uh, in our midst. And so uh, I want to I kind of share with you again a tool that we use, because I think it's important for us to understand how we, um, like how we make decisions and how we're navigating through the day-to-day operation of the church and trying to make sure that we're on the same page with what the Lord is doing. And so I've shared this with you uh, verbally before. Some of you have seen it, um, and so I'm going to show it to you uh, today. We call it the momentum circle. And so this first slide here you'll see is we draw a little circle over here to the side, and we call that divine momentum. And these, when we look at divine momentum, we're always thinking about these are stories, and they're stories that are being written um, on the hearts and lives of people. And so when it comes to momentum in the church, if you're really going to have the kind of momentum that we've been learning about through the study of Acts, then this has to be happening. Like, there has to be some, some real strong, like, the Lord doing some stuff to, to create some stories in the lives of people. Otherwise, um, you may have some movement, but it is not divine movement because you could get that movement without the Lord. And so when we roll out of that, then we come over to the next slide and we, we draw a bigger circle and we put at the hub divine momentum. And so you can see that when we're beginning to think about the church, we're looking at this hub in the middle that we call divine momentum. And then we start drawing out the spokes. Like what is it for OPCC that is important? And so we fill in all the spokes, and so you, you, can, you can use this with anything, but we use it specifically, we feel like the areas that we're to draw attention to are Sunday services, and so that's what's going on, like that's a spoke, there's a lot of people that find us through Sunday services, so it has a main emphasis, we have the student ministry, the kids ministry, discipleship is a large um, spoke for us that we focus on, how do we make disciples that make disciples, and then we have events like the softball with the Savior and the bow bash. And then we have an out where we would be reaching out and serving people in whatever capacity, whether it's folks who are, um, you know, it's D groups reaching out and ministering and going on mission or we're doing something specific within the church. Um, and then we have um, the preschool and then we have the physical plant. And then we're back to Sunday services. So these are the areas, and we go, okay, how are we doing in these areas? And and that's sort of what we focus on as a ministry. And so the next slide, we kind of start filling in around this um, outside. You can see, like, we had a discipleship event last year or last uh, spring, and it's called Taste and See. We did the men's retreat. 
And so we write in these things. Like the out today, we would write in um, the trunk or treat. We're reaching out and ministering to people and trying to bring them in, and, and we serve them. Okay, so this is kind of how we navigate through our decision-making process. And so the next um, slide, we also ask this question. How are we impeding this movement? Now, why is this important, okay? Because when it comes to momentum in the kingdom, you can, you can leverage what God is doing, or you can manufacture momentum and say that God is doing it. And so you... You always, what I really try to spend a lot of time in prayer and focus and being intentional about, because it is, it is a fine line, okay? You can have the right intentions in ministry, and you can cross this line where you, you actually fall more in love with momentum than you do the master, okay? And I've done that, and that's why I'm so careful about it, is I've ridden the wave of momentum. And, and recognized I got in a really unhealthy spot is that that momentum is intoxicating. And so I want to always be asking the question, what is the Lord doing? Not, not what does Jimmy want to do? What is the Lord doing in the midst of all of this? And we, we center on that. And then we try to like complement it by going, okay, here's our areas. This is what we focus on. Here's what the Lord has called OPCC to do. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we impeding it? And so as we work through that, we look at obstacles, and we say, okay, if we could get rid of this obstacle right here, we would be leveraging the momentum in a greater capacity because it's slowing it down right now. And, and so why, why am I taking time to, to share all of that? Because as we focus on these stories, this is going to come back um, it, it, when I get to the end of the talk, and you'll see me kind of tie it together of how we link what God is doing, and we're always asking the question, what is the Lord doing? How do we leverage that? How do we get behind him? Not what do we want to do and ask the Lord to bless it, okay? It's what is the Lord doing? How do we make sure that we're responsible for our um, own, own uh, actions and behavior in the midst of it? And so it's always about the spiritual stories that God is writing. And so today we're going to look at a, a story uh, about a, a several people. There are several characters in the story. It's out of the book of Esther, okay? And so it's the story of Esther. And she is. A, there's only two books in the Bible that are named after women, and this is one of them. The other one is Ruth. And so she has a fascinating story. It's, a, I think, nine or ten chapters. But what's so fascinating about it is in all the chapters, the, the first eight. So I can't read all of those to you today, and I can't very well... Um, you know, go through every single passage of Scripture, but to understand the power of the story and what the Lord is leading us in, I want to summarize a little bit and get you brought up to speed so you can understand when we look at some of the Scripture, like what happened. So I'd encourage you this week to read the book of Esther. Like, just look at it and, and read it and learn about it. See what the Lord teaches you from it, because it's a very encouraging uh, book about following the Lord. What's interesting about the book of Esther is it never mentions God. <laughs> it's one of the few books that doesn't say anything about God. As a matter of fact, when they were looking at the canon of Scripture and trying to decide whether or not, man, is this one that is like clearly the Lord is behind it? It doesn't say anything like you won't see God mentioned, but God is clearly throughout the story. Like the Lord is in the midst of it. And so clearly we see the characters who believe in God. And so as we work through it, that's a pretty fascinating thing. And so the story, um, the characters that we're going to focus in on is um, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, 
uh, King Xerxes, the Jewish people, and there's another real short uh, part that Queen Vashti, who is King Xerxes' uh, queen at the time, the, the, at the beginning of the book. And so what happens is, is as we jump in, is that uh, King Xerxes is getting ready to go into a battle. And so what they would do is they would plan for like seven months or so. They would plan their battle plans. And at the end of their battle plan, before they went into the battle, they would have a huge party, a huge banquet. And it would be a seven-day banquet. And so Queen Xerxes has authorized this celebration. They've formalized their strategy. And, um, and, and they're not going into battle just yet, but they're, they're going to have this great celebration. And it's seven days long. It's a seven-day party. And if you read in the first chapter, one of the things that is central in this party is wine. Like the, like the king says, let there be no limit of the wine a person wants to drink. Let him decide for himself. If he doesn't want to drink any, fine. If he wants to drink all that he can stomach and get drunker than Cooter Brown, okay. Like that's, that's what the party's like. Now, granted, King Xerxes is not a Jewish king, but that's what's happening. And so the people, that's what they do. They just start partying. Now, at this particular time, when they're in this party, and the king gets as filled as he possibly can with wine, then he calls for his queen. And there's a banquet going on. There's a banquet of men, and there's a banquet of women. So Queen Vashti is having a a banquet, a party of her own with the women, and the king, Xerxes, is having a party with the men. And he sort of gets really full, and he's, he's, he's toasted. And in that moment, Queen Vashti is a beautiful woman, and he calls for her to come and dance. He wants her to come and dance before him and his, his friends, his leaders. And Queen Vashti knows he's drunk, and she disregards it. She doesn't show up. And because of that, the men are looking at it, and they're like, man, we can't have this. Like, if the queen doesn't listen to the king, then none of our women are going to listen to us at home, right? And so he says, like, the king says, what am I going to do? And he brings in the wise guys, the so-called wise guys. Uh, They don't give good wisdom. He said, well, you need to issue an order and say that all, or that Queen Vashti is banished from the kingdom She could no longer come in the presence of the king because she wouldn't listen and do what the king said. And basically, they're saying, king, that'll help us lead our homes as well if you'll just go strong arm on her. And so that was the decision that was made. Well, some time passes, and uh, the king, like, he starts to get lonely. (laughs) He loved Queen Vashti. And he's like, what have I done? Well, a king's order, according to the Medes and Persians, couldn't be rescinded once it was made. And so he... He can't do anything about it, and his counselors know that he's lonely. He can't call for Queen Vashti because he's already made the decision. So there, there he is between a rock and a hard place. And so all of his leaders, his noblemen, get together, and they say, well, this is what we'll do. We're going to summon all of the young women, like, and we're going to find them, all of the young virgins, and we're going to take the most beautiful ones who are going to make the cut. And then we're going to bring them before the king after they've had 12 months of purification, 12 months of... Um, basically a day spa. The first half of it was going to be oils. The second half of it was going to be perfumes. And then as they went through that 12-month period, they were going to roll them before the king one by one to see if one of them was found to be pleasing among the king. 
And so that's where we come up with Esther. Esther is a Jewish um, girl. She's grown up in this area, and it's not in Jerusalem. It's outside of the area. It is during the Babylon or the captivity where they're taken off, where they've lost their right to be in their homeland, as, as the Lord said would happen to them. And so this is just prior to Nehemiah going back and building the wall. So it comes after the book of Nehemiah, but it hap actually happens about 30 years before. And so she is part of that Babylonian captivity. Esther lost her parents early in life. She was an orphan. And her cousin Mordecai adopted her, and he's taken care of her. He's been part of the Babylonian captivity as well. And so she is a very beautiful young woman. And, and so she goes through this whole purification with all of these other women. And Mordecai happened to have a position of leadership within the, the city. Uh, and, and so he had somewhat of a position where he was able to lead. And so when, when, um, when Esther is brought before the king, she does only what the, the king's servant had told her to do. And she's pleased, like the, the king is pleased with her. As a matter of fact, it says she's, she has favor with everybody. Everybody loves Esther. And so when the king sees her, he chooses her and he makes her queen. And so now we have Mordecai, her cousin, who has a position of leadership at the city gates. And we have Esther, whom nobody knows is Jewish because Mordecai said, don't tell anybody. That's just going to mess everything up. Keep that to yourself, Esther. So nobody knows Esther is a Jew. And so Mordecai has got this position of leadership, and Esther is now made queen, which it wasn't like a queen who had like all this equal power. It was a different time. As a matter of fact, she didn't even see the king every day, okay? But she, he did find favor with him. And so what happens is there's another guy you have to understand in the story. His name is Haman. And Haman is one of the uh, noblemen, and he's like a chief nobleman. And so in this story, like, he is second in command um, to only the king. Like he, he is the king's right hand man. And so he is an Amalekite. And if you study the Old Testament, you, his ancestors were the Amalekites. You know that the Amalekites hated the Jews. Like there's a, and, 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 and so all throughout the Old Testament, there's this extreme hatred going on um, between these two groups because of how cruel they were to the Jewish people when the Lord was leading them out of captivity when they were becoming a nation when, when they were released from Egypt. And so here, Mordecai is an Amalekite. He's the king's right-hand man. And so in, um, in, in this, in this uh, leadership, like the king... He gets the king, like he's full of himself, this guy is. He's extremely arrogant. And so he's in a position where people are required to bow down and honor him. It's a form of worship, almost. And so as he passes by and walks down the street, people would, they, there was an edict that was passed that they would have to bow and, and honor him and pay him a form of worship. And every time he would come by Mordecai, people were bowing, but Mordecai wouldn't do it. Now, why wouldn't Mordecai do it? Was he being rebellious? No, he was a Jew. And his religion, his belief in God as a, uh, the, in, in a, being a monotheistic religion, they didn't believe in all kinds of gods. And so they weren't going to do that. Just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down, then he was not going to bow down either. And so this infuriated Mordecai. And so Mordecai is like, he's talking to um, uh, his wife, and he's talking to some of his friends. What am I going to do? And, and so he comes up with a plan, and he goes before the king, and he says, king. And he sort of, it, he tells a half-truth. There are a group of people who do not do what you say, king. 
And they are going to cause division within the kingdom. Now, what they weren't doing is they weren't worshiping Mordecai. They weren't causing any problems for the king, but Mordecai didn't tell the king, or Haman didn't tell the king that. And so as he tells this half-truth to the king, he gets the king to authorize him on a certain day um, to take as much money as he needed and put out a bounty on Jewish people's heads. And so he does. So he sets a certain day out in the future, and he writes letters, and it goes to all of the region that was controlled by this kingdom. And the, 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 basically the edict says, on such and such day, you are, uh, it is okay for you to attack any Jew living in your area. You can, you can kill them, men, women, boys, girls. It doesn't matter, and you could take everything they own and take it as possession for yourself. And so this is circulated among the entire kingdom. And, and, and Haman has the full authority to execute it. And so um, Mordecai learns of this. And when he hears about it, man, he is broken. And it says that he puts on sackcloth and ashes, meaning that he puts on very un- un- uncomfortable clothing. He puts ashes on his face. He starts to fast, and he's mourning out um, where people can see him in public. And Esther is in a royal place, and she's like, what is going on with my cousin Mordecai, the man who adopted and raised me? And so she takes her servant, and she says, go find out what's going on um, with Mordecai. And so as she's um, sending a message, then um, Haman is again meeting with his wife and uh, his uh, entourage, if you will. And he's furious about the fact that Mordecai um, won't, uh, he's let his rage get so much a hold of him that now he's willing to like, like eliminate all the Jewish people. Because this meant that they believed something that would forbid them to worship him. And that, like, his, his ego had the best of him. And so his wife and his, um, his, his uh, leaders that he had around him, he's, he's saying, man, everything is great in my life. The king thinks I'm awesome. I'm, I'm wealthy as all get out. I have all this stuff. And he says, but this one thing, like, it's just driving me nuts that these, this, this one Jew, Mordecai, and all his people won't worship me. And so they say to him, this is what you ought to do, bro. You ought to take outside of your house and you ought to build a gallows 75 feet high and you ought to hang that Jew on that gallows. Whoa, (laughs) that's exactly what he said. So that's what he decides to do. And so he has the gallows built. And so we pick up here, um, and Esther has sent, and she's, Mordecai has, has reported to Esther's servant, where we pick up in chapter 4, verse 9, and Hathak is the servant, and he comes back and he says, and he reports to Esther, and it says this. He reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai. And basically, what he had reported was that man, Haman has executed this, this uh, order, and all the Jewish people are going to be attacked. And so he's reported that to Esther, which she's there living uh, in, in uh, royalty. And so then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's fish officials and all the uh, people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law, that he'd be put to death. Now, why is she responding to him that way? Because Mordecai... As he sent the instruction back with the servant, he said, you're going to have to go talk to the king. So he tells Esther, you got to go in and you got to make a plea for the king. And so she responds and says, man, like, I can't do that. Like, you, you know what the law is, is that if you enter the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. So basically, Esther replies to Mordecai and says, you can't just go before the king. 
Like, this is, this, you got to think about what happened to Queen Vashti, Mordecai. She was banished from the kingdom for not responding the way that protocol said she was supposed to respond. So Esther's like, she's like worried because she's like, look, she's between a rock and a hard place. Her people um, are are going to be attacked on a such and such date. Her, her, the man that raised her is saying, you got to go talk to the king. She knows that she can't just go talk to the king, that she doesn't have that kind of authority. And so she's a little bit nervous. She's in a hopeless situation. And so when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, it says in verse 12, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but you, that you have come to, roi- uh, to a royal position for such a time as this. Okay, so what we have to understand is this is not a conversation, right? This is a, a very slow snail mail process that's going through um, a, a servant. And there are days that are passing between these, uh, this communication. And so as she's going through this, there's a considerable amount of time um, elapsing. And she has to be thinking to herself during this time, um, like, what, what's going on with her? Like, what am I supposed to do? So we see her in a place where her whole life is at risk and, and the entire kingdom or the, the entire nation of Israel that lived in her area was in jeopardy of their lives being harmed if she doesn't do anything. And so this is, she's probably thinking to herself, this is my life we're talking about here. And so what does she do as she wrestles with it for a few days? Here's her response in verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews or who are in Susa, and fast for me. Like, um, she says, go, all the Jews in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away, carried out all of Esther's instructions. And what I love about this is that Esther faces the challenge. She looks at it. She knows it's terrifying. And I can relate to that, to be in a position where you're afraid about the future. You're afraid about how this thing might work out. And she basically comes to the conclusion, like, if I perish, I perish. Something has to be done. And so there's sort of an attitude um, that, that I think the Lord looks at us and he loves. So I think the Lord is looking at each one of you, and he's asking, that, asking himself, like, when does a person on the planet, wherever they may be, whether it be at OPCC or some other body of believers, do they have the attitude when it comes to me and stepping up for my kingdom that they would just say, regardless of what happens, I'm going to seek the Lord, and if I perish, I perish. And that's sort of where Esther landed in this moment. And so what we see is that she seized the opportunity, and she believed God. Now, that's pretty cool, but then the story gets really intense from this part, and this is where we see, man, sometimes it may look like God is not showing up, and he is always moving, and when we begin to become people who are serious about the kingdom, and we're serious about pursuing the Lord with all of our hearts, and when we become people who are willing to engage in prayer, and engage in fasting, and engage in things that will move the kingdom the way we see it being moved in scripture, then we begin to see the kingdom move. And so when the people start fasting, here's what happens. And so there's there's such and such date that Haman had set set this thing out as out in the future. And so the people are fasting. And when they're fasting, what happens is that 
the king can't sleep one night. He's like tossing and turning. He can't sleep, man. And so what does he do? Well, he can't get up and watch TV because they don't have TVs, right? And so he calls for the book of the kings, the history of the kings and the records and the reports to be brought and read for him. This is what they did. Just come and read those things to me. He's probably thinking to, my, to himself, some of them are so boring, it'll probably help me fall asleep, right? And so they're reading them to him. And lo and behold, they come up on this one thing. And it says that, and uh, the Jew, Mordecai, was sitting at the gates, and he found out that these two uh, characters who were bodyguards of the king were discussing, discussing an attempt to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai had told the queen, Esther, that you need to make somebody aware these two cats want to kill the king. And so he sends a report, and what happens is they investigate, and it's true. And so they take those two guys, and they hang them, and the, the king is protected. And so the king hears that, and he says, what have we done for this cat, Mordecai? And the, the guy looking through the records, and says, like, we haven't done anything. He said, we need to do something. That guy saved my life. Who's out in the courtyard right now? They look out in the courtyard, in the king's court, just outside of where he was at, and found out that Haman was out there. Send for Haman. Haman is the right-hand man of the king. Haman comes in. What is it, king? He says, Haman, what do we do for the guy that the king wants to honor? And Haman is like, ding, who in the kingdom would the king want to honor more than me? And so he says, this is what I would do, king. I would take the finest royal robe that you have worn, your favorite robe, and I would put it on that individual. Then I would take your royal steed, the one that you always ride back into town um, with in victory, and I would put that person on it. And then I would take your most loyal servant, the highest ranking noble you have, and I would have that man led through the city, and I would shout, this is what is done for the man who the, whom the king wishes to honor. And the king says, that's a good plan, bro. Would you go get Mordecai and do that? <laughs> and so, like, Haman is like, what is going on, man? He, he's just built a gallows to hang him on. And so he, he does it. He goes through and he fulfills his responsibility. And then um, he goes home and he's like, oh, honey, you don't understand how bad my day is. And all of his bros are there and he's telling them. And they say to him, bro, there's nothing you can do. It's set in stone. You're going down. And the way that it kind of reads, I kind of see his wife packing her stuff as she's breaking the news to him. And so uh, then um, Esther goes before the king. While all of that's going down, Esther goes before the king. And he extends the royal scepter to her. And so when she goes before the king, Haman is in the presence. His life is, he, he, and he, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Like, he knows that Mordecai has just been elevated, whom he just went to kill. And he, the king is not aware of this at this time. And the king is not aware, nor is Haman aware, that Esther and Mordecai are family. Okay? And so, so he goes before, uh, the, Esther goes before the king and says, what, what is it that you desire of me, Esther? And she says, well, I want you to come to a banquet. And so the king agrees to go to a banquet, and she says, I want Haman to come with you. And so they go, and at the banquet, they say, well, what is it that uh, um, you desire? And so the, Esther at the banquet begins to say, listen, there is, there is a person who means ill for all of my countrymen and me. They want to kill me. And she basically lays out the plot. 
And, and, the, and the king says, who is this that wants to do that and bring harm to the king? And she says, it's that man sitting right next to you. And the king is furious, and he gets up, and he storms out into the garden. And what does Haman do? He starts begging for his life. And so there Queen Vashti is, who had fasted and prayed and sought the Lord's hand with all of her people. She's reclining on a table. The king has stormed out in anger, and Haman is begging at her side for his life. And the king comes back in, and he says, he says what? Will you molest my queen even though you wanted to kill all her and all of her people? And out the uh, authorities come in. They cover his head with a, uh, a bag. They take him to his house, put him on the 75-foot gallows, and they hang him. And Mordecai is elevated to take his spot and gets all of his property. And the Lord is moving all this. You go, what in the world? This is an incredible Story, And when we see that after that, the whole nation is spared. And, and again, it's a great story. I'd encourage you to read it this week. But what we see is where we started with that, that, that little graphic that I gave you in the beginning. Is that spiritual stories always tell us how the kingdom is moving. And so we always have to be asking, what are the stories of the movement of the kingdom? And so when we, we go into, like, here's the deal. Like, make no mistake, you guys, okay? I don't want to, like, nobody's going to surprise you on November 17th. Let me be very clear and transparent with you. We're going to try to raise money, okay? Like, we're just going to. And so that's what November 17th is about. And so I'm not, like, I'm not apologizing for that. I'm not a guy who gets up and preaches about money and says you need to give, blah, 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 blah. I'm not that guy. But I am the guy when I see the kingdom move, I am the guy to say it's time to get alongside of what the Lord is doing. And so when we answer this and we go, well, what is the what? The what is, is there are obstacles that are in the midst of what we see that the Lord has been doing. The Lord is writing stories on the hearts of people. And as we look at those stories, we've always known that there are a couple of major obstacles that take like a lot of heavy lifting. They take a move of the Lord in order to address. And one of them is the kids ministry. It's like having a space to where we can really... Um, take care of and minister to families who have small children and teach them and expose them to the first truths of the gospel as a ministry. It's like we want to equip that space. We want to flesh that space out. We want to do something that, man, when a, a new family comes in, they're not like, eh. They're like, whoa, right? Because we, we're showing that we believe the next generation is important in the kingdom. So that's an obstacle that we'd like to see removed that we believe is impeding the movement of the kingdom at OPCC. The second one is just the way the building looks. Like it just, like the curb appeal of this building is nasty. Like it just is. Like you look at it and there's nothing to draw. There's nothing that says hope. There's nothing that says dreams. There's nothing that says vision. And so we look at that and we go, okay, we want to address that. Here's what I want you to hear. Those are the what's, okay? Like, like that's the what. The why is what's important. Like, there are logistical things. There are things that, like, the guys, are, like, they're working with the architect right now. I've just turned that over to Dan, and he's, they're working on, like, we didn't know we were going to be in this position, okay? So there's movement happening. But my concern is the why. Like, it's always about why would we even want to step out and do some things like that. And, and the answer is, the big idea is always about the why of the story. And so here's a story that has happened at OPCC. 
Lord has <laughs> the Lord has done so much in my life in the last two years. Uh, I guess I've been going to OPCC for a little over two years now, and uh, oh man, it, it all started with uh, just hearing the truth. And so when I was when the first time I actually heard the truth, the first time I came to OPCC, I heard the truth, and I could feel that it was something different. And I, I mean, I couldn't even explain it. And so I kept coming back, kept coming back, because I wanted to know what was different, why I liked it. And uh, it was just that I had worked my entire life to find perfection. And I kept failing to find perfection in myself and in my relationship, because I wasn't perfect and I was working alone. And uh, so it was just fascinating to hear you preaching about uh, Jesus, the perfect, the perfect man man God and uh, and so it just piqued my interest and I just got hungry for it and I just wanted to know more and more and I just kept coming back um, getting filled up and then I realized I was like I I just haven't done anything other than go to church and so I wanted to learn more I wanted to like just learn about Jesus and so through uh, OPCC the Lord provided discipleship and that allowed me to uh, not only get into the Bible, but get into a group of men who would just lead me um, to understand what I'm reading, uh, to encourage me to create a relationship with God, and to just strengthen me in my faith. Like I couldn't, I couldn't have made nearly as much progress as I did if I hadn't um, started. Uh, going to a discipleship group and I mean it, it, it transformed me and so I started out just a, a proud <laughs> ignorant guy um, seeking something that I really could tell was good and through discipleship uh, I got the opportunity to have you walk me through uh, a Kairos moment and that was, oh, it was hard, but basically I had you ask me a question. I guess we started with fasting and I didn't want to fast, but I did it once and it turned into me just getting angry and I couldn't explain it. And so you had a fast for four weeks and I just didn't tell you that I didn't fast until finally the last week you said, all right, so how are we doing? And I said, I didn't do it. <laughs> like, what do you mean you didn't do it? And, uh, and I was just, I was mad and I, I just couldn't explain it. And so you just pushed me and you, you leaned into me and you're like, why, would, why are you mad? Like, why didn't you talk to me about it? And I just didn't want to talk about it. And so you finally, um, started like you just asked you're asking the questions I needed to have asked um, like why am I angry why do I not want to why am I not okay with not eating um, and it led to conversation about like me and my dad and how he had um, just done a dumb little thing said all right well you can't eat you can't have this you can't have this you're too spoiled you keep doing this and uh, and I just decided to be a spoiled little brat and I decided like I'm gonna want to going on a hunger strike and so I stopped eating and uh, I did it out of anger. And so when I started fasting, I, uh, it just brought me right back to like my anger towards my dad. 
And then you pressed in more and you're like, well, why are you angry with your dad? And I was like, cause we don't, I don't have a good relationship with him cause he left. And, uh, and, and I was like, all right, I'm, and I'm fine with that. And you, you just kept on pressing in cause you could tell I wasn't fine with it. And, uh, and I just didn't want to talk about it. Didn't want to talk about it. And the guys around us didn't want me to have to talk about it. And everybody was trying to defend me, but you were fighting for me. And, uh, it's just crazy because you pushed through and you just, you said, <laughs> I'll never forget, you said like, I don't have a relationship with my father because I'm choosing not to create a relationship with him. And you don't have a relationship with your father because he died. And, and that just broke me. And it sounded awful and it sounded, it was just one of those moments that like you can never prepare yourself for. You can't t say someone say to someone, you should join this because you're gonna get broken down. But it's one of those things where if you, if I had never had that moment, I would have never strengthened my relationship with my dad. I never, that, that bridge could have been, that could have been broken for five more years, 10 more years, and I don't know. And uh, it was just one of those things that, because I started going to OPCC, because I found you, I, I was able to, to grow, like to have a real growth experience. And now I have a good relationship with my dad and I was doing the math the other day is a, a year after I had the conversation with you and discipleship, um, my dad's coming home and well, came home, moved to Kansas, and two years after that, he's gonna be a grandfather. Before we found OBCC, my mom had just passed away in December. And I, I like to imagine what I did with my mom's death was I put her in a box. I put her in a box, it was my box, I put it in my heart. I didn't let people have it. I didn't, I didn't talk to people about it. I um, was very isolated to myself. And um, one day Rick was telling me, Let, let's go to church. Let's, let's try this church out. And I said, fine, like, why not? Um, I have been going to a Methodist church all my life. So I'm like, why not? And just like normal church. And I walked in and I hated it. I hated it so much. I was not used to the worship music. I was not used to standing on my feet for so long. I hated every minute of it. And when we left, I still hated it. And then we went back the next week. And I hated it less, but I still hated it. And I was really sad because I really wanted to like it because Rick was so excited and I loved the pastor and everything, but I just couldn't get over standing for 25 minutes and list singing songs that I had no idea that always made me cry. But I was like, the Lord wants me to, I, I knew that I had a feeling that something was happening at OPCC, so I kept going and I kept going. And then the third time I went and I liked it. I was like, okay, I kind of like the music today. And then I was like, and then the message, I don't remember what the message was, but it was really good. And then I left, when we were about to leave, somebody said, bye, Rick and Brittany. And I said, they know me, they know who I am. And that was the moment where I was like, this is where we need to stay because they remembered who I was. And it was the third time. And I was like, this is my new home. And which led to um, fellowship. And so when I had my like fellowship with, all these different amazing women that were talking to me and leaning in on me. Um, it taught me like that box that I've been holding on to was not my box to keep. It was the Lord's box. And I think like 
that moment of realizing like that was not my box that I get to keep really changed my direction of my faith. And OPCC let me finally grieve my mom and be able to like know that she's in heaven and I get to not just join the Lord, but I get to see her again. And I think just that knowing of that just as like, that is the biggest shift in my life. And I don't think I would be as great of a person without OPCC because my view would have been about myself and not about the Lord. So another, like we got a lot of stories. And so over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing more stories. One, one thing I would say about that is uh, Rick said I had him fast for four weeks. That was once a week for four weeks, not four weeks straight. Okay. So I want to be clear about that in case I talk to you about discipleship. And you're like, Mm-mm, no. Um, and so as we think about these stories, okay, um, so like another story is uh, what's happened in the hope to remove an obstacle. So this thing, like we've been talking about this before. Like, the, before I actually arrived, we started talking about how do we address the physical appearance of the building. And so we sort of landed on a, on a concept um, that started with a discussion around a sign that quickly went bigger than a sign, okay? Um, and so we ended up, like, as we're looking at the cost of constructing something that we thought would be relatively inexpensive... Um, and discovered that there's no such thing in construction, right? Um, so I, we, we were kind of just throwing it out there going, we don't know what to do. Like, we, we probably feel like we can't do this. And so another story was that in a service where I was kind of a little let down and, and thinking I was letting the body down by saying that um, we're going to have to figure out a different plan, walked away with $75,000 committed to the project. And so you're like, what just happened? And so there are two people that before I got to the parking lot told me we're behind this. And so I look at that and go, that is a story. Like, like, like I didn't have anything to do with that. Like the Lord just did it. And so at that particular juncture, I think we have to ask, what is the Lord saying to us? What, what are we supposed to do about that? And, and I, I clearly believe, and, and the leadership of the church clearly believes that it is time for us to share the story with the community. See, there are really cool things happening here, and, and we've got several people on deck that are going to launch out in discipleship this January. And so as, as we look at that and we think about, man, like, we think about Brick and Brittany's stories and other stories over the next few weeks who will be sharing. And I would encourage you, if you have a story, like write some of it out. Let us email it to me because we, want to, we think it's extremely important to know about the stories, to hear about the stories. How is the Lord using OPCC to bring the kingdom um, into your life? And so that this month, like we're making the decision to like figure out, not, not only spend the month to share the stories, but go... How do we share the story with, with the community? And so we need to be behind what the Lord is doing. So each, each week, we'll share a different, different story. Um, now, here's what I need you to do. 
because we're leading up to a big day on November 17th. I want to call you right now as a body of believers to a fast, a 21-day fast. So for the next 21 days, starting on Monday, what is one thing that you can sacrifice and say, I will not, I will not please myself with this for 21 days? And just as a commitment to the Lord to say, Lord, I want you to speak um, speak to the, the body of OPCC, speak to me individually. Like, what am I supposed to do? What are you calling me to do? Like, listen, I, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do. And I don't really like doing things like this outside of the fact that I know that when we get a little uncomfortable and the Lord is in it, we see miraculous things. And so as we move forward, we go, man, like, what is the Lord up to? I think it's important for us to be seeking the heart of the Lord. And so I will be choosing something in my life that I feel the Lord is calling me to say, until November 17, I'm, not, I'm just going to deny myself of that. And, and so it could be anything. You, can, you might choose soda. You might choose sweets. Um, I don't know. But it should not be something easy. It should be a challenge for you. So that each time you think about it, you're reminded of what you're doing as you're entering into a constant season of prayer, asking the Lord to move in this situation. And then on November 16th, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer vigil. And so we will pray through the night, 24 hours, and you will have a place where you could say, man, I'll, I'll do half an hour or I'll do a whole hour. You can sign up for a couple of spots. Koi will be leading out on that, and we'll be, we'll be communicating and sending that information out to you. Uh, soon. And then we'll come back in on November 17th, and we're just going to have a big day. It's going to be a celebration day. And you won't be asked to do anything beyond what the Lord asks you to do, okay? So if the Lord doesn't ask you to get behind this, don't get behind it, okay? Don't do it because Jimmy is asking you to do it. But I am going to ask you to follow me as I follow Jesus. Like, I'm going to get behind it. Like, there, my family is going to have to sacrifice to make it a reality. And I'm already in the process of, Lord, what do, you, what do you want from Jimmy? Like, what are you asking me to lay down to, to make a reality for this community of what you want to do? And so we'll come in on, on Sunday. We're going to have a big day. We're going to have a, a meal, and service will be a little bit different, but it's going to be an awesome time as we look and see that the big idea for us is just like it was for Esther Sometimes you have to seize the moment. And I'm reminded of what Mordecai said to her. Don't think that you will be spared from this edict. If, if you do not rise up and do something, the Lord will raise up deliverance from somewhere else. And here's what I would say to you. I believe this with all of my heart. We are at a moment the Lord has created for us. And we will either step into it and be responsible and seize it, or we will miss it and the Lord will raise some, somebody else to do the job. That's just how the kingdom works. And so I'm excited about the future and, and encouraged about the next few weeks as we just hear about the stories as we move into what is the Lord doing at OPCC. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.